Please stand for the reading of the word. Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up to Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the disciples told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. You may be seated. Thank you, Herbach duo. Um, Before we dive in, I want to say a special thank you um, and praise God to all of you who contribute financially to Orlando Grace Church. Um, This year, 2019, more has, we have received more money in our general fund than any year in the 28 years that, that we have existed at Orlando Grace Church, which is thrilling. So thank you for all of you who contribute, um, I do also want to say, since this is December and people are looking for, uh, for places to give, that our expenses have increased significantly too. <laughs> As we have grown, Join Acts 29, added to staff, and when we look at our 2020 budget, uh, we are budgeting by faith to some extent. And so every dime that comes in uh, in December is going to help set us up strong in 2020. And it was a huge encouragement for me uh, this week that I want to share with you. Um, Mike has been working really hard on our first ever uh, annual report. You're going to get a report on everything that everything we set out to do and everything that has been done. And it's important that, that to us as elders that everyone who contributes financially knows what goes on. And so we set out to accomplish 67 things by God's grace in 2019, and 63 of those things have been accomplished. Uh, two are underway. 
One we decided not to do and just one was never started. So we want you to see what's happening and be encouraged and and we want to communicate in the strongest possible way, thank you for everything that you've done to, um, to see the ministries of Orlando Grace Church funded. With that, we can now transition into Luke 2. Probably, uh, I think it's fair to say, the most well-known story in all of the Bible. I don't think it would be a stretch to say that the passage we have here could be the most well-known story in the history of humanity. And this was famous long before Charlie Brown came around. This, w- this has been a very well-known, told story that actually th- this text is the story that inspires uh, the nativity scenes that we have in our church and many of you have in your homes. Um, I can remember as a child in my grandmother's house looking at her nativity scene and just kind of staring at it with wonder and kind of curious about how the events transpired, how people would have felt. And we know that our nativity scenes aren't perfect, so we don't know how many wise men there were. We know the wise men probably came a little bit later. We're pretty sure Jesus was not, uh, did not have blonde hair and blue eyes. But for some reason, that's all that you can find is when you shop for nativity scenes these days. But whatever your views on the second commandment, our nativity scenes are important in that they're faithful to this text and they point to something. They point to an event that was so significant, it forever changed the entire history of the human race. And if we don't see what the nativity scenes are here to point to, we miss everything. You can see this sometimes with little kids when they're, when they're really young. They don't understand what pointing means. And so if you point to something, it's not uncommon for, for a child, instead of looking where the finger's pointing, just to look at the finger. <laughs> and then maybe go up and grab the finger. And this is what we want to avoid. In, in this passage, in nativity scenes, we don't want to look at the finger. We want to look at what it's pointing to. We want to be able to distinguish between the signposts and the destination. Because the traditions and the presents and the parties and all the biblical imagery around us, they're signposts pointing to a very significant moment in human history. And if we see what it's pointing to, if we understand the function, then it will affect us at the deepest levels. Because we exist with fears and insecurities and longings for purpose that if we, we will never experience if we don't understand what the story and all these nativity scenes are pointing towards. And so that's my hope this morning is that we would see it and that it would affect us and that we would see the only answer to the things we long for mo- most is found in Jesus Christ alone. So I want to look at this story and I want to look at it knowing that we're the shepherds in the story, that we are given a savior, and lastly, that we are made heralds. So that's kind of the way I want to walk through the story. So first, we are the shepherds. Before I explain how we're the shepherds, it would be helpful to understand a little bit more about shepherds because we don't live in an agrarian society anymore. And we don't understand what, what a shepherd was like at that time and in that place. Shepherds were not necessarily the most esteemed people in this society. There was, there's an old phrase uh, that, that said they, they tended to confuse mine with thine. <laughs> so they had sticky fingers. They, they had loose morals. Um, they wouldn't have been people that would have been invited into uh, polite company. 
they probably were dirty. They smelled, they live outside. And we have no reason to believe that these shepherds would have been any different than all the rest of the shepherds that we know about in that time. And certainly if this was like some unique, righteous, good group of shepherds, I think Luke would have told us that, but he doesn't. So imagine these shepherds. It's the middle of the night. Maybe they're drinking wine that isn't theirs. Maybe they're in the middle of a dirty joke and boom, the darkness breaks open. This angel bursts forth and the glory of God is surrounding them all. How do you think they would have felt? Terrified. I mean, you don't even, obviously Luke confirms this. He says they were filled with fear, but I don't even think we need Luke telling us that to understand that would have been a terrifying moment. And so how is it that we're like the shepherds? Because all of us, we live in this world with some measure of fear. You know, we don't control this world. We are all one bad doctor's appointment or one phone call away from an entirely different life. And in those moments when we're faced with eternity, when we're faced with some truth, we can't help but realize and acknowledge at some level that we're not living our lives the way that God wants us to live it. And all of us at some level, we know how to respond when we're confronted with eternity or when we're confronted with just a taste of the holiness of God. The only way that we should rightly feel is fear. The same kind of fear that the shepherds felt. And if you go all throughout scripture, this is pretty consistent with every time an angel comes on the scene. When an angel comes on the scene, people fear. And I don't think they fear because the angels look scary. I think they feared because the angels looked heavenly. Maybe this is the reason that, that so often when angels come on, came on the scene that people would try and worship them. One pastor likens what's going on here like, stress fractures in a bridge so I'm not an engineer a structural engineer but from what I'm told that there there are all these little tiny cracks these fractures in a bridge they're already there but you can't see them all until you do a stress test when you apply stress cracks that are there but invisible to the eye become visible and so this pastor says this moment these moments kind of like the shepherds are experiencing now this is a stress test revealing all those cracks that already existed And so these cracks, they can be revealed by the stresses of Christmas. They can be revealed by a a bad medical diagnosis. They can be revealed by the loss of a loved one. And they can be revealed by the appearance of an angel. And these kinds of good and right fears, God doesn't want us to just sit in them. God's purpose is that they would lead us back to him, that they would lead us back to the one who can fix those cracks, to the one who can solve our fears and our insecurities, and the one who ultimately, as we're going to see in a moment, gives us purpose in our lives. Because all of us know at some level that we're not living the lives that we're supposed to live, and we can we have these cracks, these flaws in who we are, and we can try and ignore these cracks. We can just try and stay busy with work or hobbies. We can try and numb the cracks with alcohol and other things. But these cracks are here. And we can't ignore them. 
Do you know why Mary did not, Mary and Joseph didn't have a place to stay? When they went to Bethlehem, they didn't have a place to stay. And it wasn't because people didn't like Jesus. <laughs> and it, it wasn't because they were opposed to God. They didn't have a place to stay because the people were busy. Everybody was too busy. They didn't know what was going to go on. And they should have. They could have. I mean, they, they were busy with the, with the census. They were busy probably seeing old family and friends that they hadn't seen in a long time. But if they had not been so busy and if they had eyes to see it, they could have known or at least been on, on the watch for what was happening. Because the prophets had told them that there is going to be a Messiah and that he will come through the line of David. And that's why these people are gathering in Bethlehem because it's the city of David. They, they knew that the baby would be born in this town, that, that he would be from Nazareth. And I think they had enough to see in scripture to even be able to hear the story of how Jesus was conceived and to be able to understand, yes, it makes sense that it would come from a virgin birth. But the whole city was so busy, they never stopped to consider and they didn't see. Somebody asked me this week, actually, what, what do I miss most about living overseas? And I haven't really thought about this much, but the answer was really easy. It was just a simpler life. It was simpler. We didn't have a lot of friends. Our church was a little, really small. We didn't have a lot of activities. But, and, and back then, we didn't use our phone the way that we do now. And so our lives just seemed to naturally prioritize God, family, church, because of the simplicity but now our lives are so busy, it's so easy for me and our family to miss what it is that we're celebrating in the season. So I look at the town of Bethlehem and I feel conviction. We can busy ourselves, we can distract ourselves, we can numb ourselves, but these cracks will surface. They could surface through anxiety and loneliness and oppression. They could surface through a major life catastrophe. They could surface just reading the Bible and praying and it just hits you. They could surface like in our text from an angel appearing, but these, these cracks will surface. We can't ignore them forever. We can try to ignore them like the shepherds. We can try to stay busy like the town, but one day heaven is going to break in and the only thing left for us to feel is going to be fear. There is no faith, there is no Christianity, and there is no Jesus for us if we cannot acknowledge the cracks, if we cannot feel that kind of fear. And the Bible calls this repentance. Being able to say that these, these cracks are there. I am flawed. I need something that I don't have in and of myself. My life is not working for me as long as I'm in charge of it. That's what the Bible calls repentance. And when we can see that, that we're the shepherds, then... We can celebrate and hear the words of the angel who says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. If we see that we're the shepherds, we see that we are given a savior. This baby who is born he isn't just a good man. He isn't just a prophet. He isn't just a king. He isn't just the most influential human being who has ever lived in the history of this earth. And there's almost no 
historian, whatever religious background they have that would debate that Jesus Christ is the most influential person in the history of this earth. He's more than all those things. Jesus, according to this passage, is the savior. And I love the way Luke opens up this story. You know, all the commentators and historians uh, and scholars, they, they note how detailed Luke is in, in the introduction of what's going on here. And it's easy for us to, to not appreciate what he's doing here. I think he's doing a few things. First, we can see from this that this is a real event in a real place and time. You know, this is not Narnia. This is not Middle Earth. It doesn't start out once upon a time or a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. This is real. This happened in a real town called Bethlehem when a real guy named Quirinius was governor and he answered to the most powerful emperor Rome ever knew, Caesar Augustus. But I think Luke's doing something else as well. He's setting up a choice. He's comparing two people who make very similar claims about themselves. Two people between whom most of the people in the known world at that time would have to choose. They would choose allegiance either to Caesar or to Jesus. Because Caesar, he claimed to be king. He claimed to be Lord. He actually claimed to be son of a God. He took on the title Pontifus Maximus, which meant high priest. And because he brought unprecedented peace to the entire Roman Empire, people begin to call him their savior. And we actually have documentation in the eastern part of the empire that there were people who even went so far as to worship him as God. And when Luke is writing this, you know, we have to remember he knows where he's going at the end of his gospel. He knows what's coming. He knows that Jesus, at the end of this gospel, will stand in front of a representative of Caesar Augustus, Pontius Pilate, and Pontius would look at him in the face and ask him, are you the king? And there's a good chance Caesar Augustus never heard of the name of Jesus Christ in his lifetime. But just one generation later, All the Caesars were working to obliterate this group of people who had the audacity to say that Jesus was king over Caesar. And here's how this connects to the cracks in our foundation. There is a battle raging in all of us for kingship. Who is it that's going to be king? What is it that ultimately we are going to put all our hopes in? That, that's where our king is. And probably none of us are really tempted to make a Caesar our king. But maybe politics is. Maybe our career is. Maybe making it in your career or getting a certain level of, of financial security. Maybe our children are our kings of our lives. Where is it that we put our ultimate ha- hope, where we think we're going to get our ultimate satisfaction? That's our king. And if we give our kingship to anybody other than Jesus Christ we will be let down. It will only accentuate all of these cracks that we're experiencing in the foundation of our lives because none, no other king ultimately has control over anything or really cares about us at all. But in this passage, we see in this text that, text that God has extreme control over all the events in this world And he cares about us more than we could ever imagine. So I just want to look at those two things briefly. Let's look at God's control in this passage. 
what we might also call God's providence, God's divine guidance. You know, atheistic historians all all point out that, you know, kind of, you know, as a ch- by chance, Jesus just happened to come into this world at the perfect time for Christianity to flourish. Now, obviously, we look at that and we think, no, God, that's God's providence. He, he made all this happen the way that it happened. But when Jesus came into the, this world, we were experiencing a peace, which the Roman peace, the Pax Romana, in a way that, that the world had never known before. So you could travel between cities and countries with relative safety in a way that was unprecedented. And in addition to that, Rome Because of this safety, they built roads between all these different cities. And so you could travel safely, you could travel quickly, and as luck would have it, you could talk to each other. You know, before this era, everybody had their own language and their own dialect. But just three centuries earlier, Alexander the Great had solved all of that because he brought one common language to the empire, Greek. So Jesus comes on the scene at the perfect time where his followers can then go all over the known world and speak to anybody and tell them about the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we also see God's providence in Caesar calling for this census. Because the census fulfills the prophecy of Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The only reason that Jesus was born in Bethlehem is because Caesar Augustus called the census. So not only are we given a better king than Caesar, we see God using Caesar to accomplish this. And on top of all that, The world at this time began to have categories for who Jesus is and what Jesus would do. We understood concepts like prophet, priest, king, atonement for sins, one sacrifice for many, temple, the dwelling place of God among men. We had these fleshed out categories because of what God had been doing over the course of human history to understand who Jesus is and what he would do. And so this is what I think Paul is getting at when he talks about this one perfect moment in redemptive history. Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, because of God's providence, because of God's control, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus is the long-predicted, long-awaited Messiah, the anointed king this baby ruler, this, this baby is the ruler that Isaiah prophesied so many years before. Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus' arrival, it brings God's glory to this earth it brings peace to us 
And we can see that he is the only one who has ultimate control, which makes Jesus logically the only king that can really affect the cracks in our life, the only king that can really address the problems in our life. But control isn't the main thing. We can, he, he is all controlling, but we have to see he is all caring at the same time, which we also see in our passage, or maybe just, just below our passage. Look at how the angels respond in verse 14. They burst out in praise, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Now, this verse, it's important to understand this translation versus the one that many of us grew up with in the King James. But the verse says, and I'm convinced this is the most accurate to the original language, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's not just a general goodwill towards men. It is peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Jesus' arrival, it brings God's glory, and it brings us peace. And to see this, we need to remember that Jesus isn't just popping on the scene here. He isn't a little bit late to the party. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity who has always existed. He is the second person of the most glorious being that has ever existed and will ever exist. And by taking on flesh, he comes down here and he goes from glory and honor and fame to sleeping as a baby in a trough. Why in the world would Jesus do that? Because he cares. He cares about us. And not only does he care about us enough just to enter into this world, I mean, that's an unimaginable sacrifice for him in and of itself, but he entered into a particularly difficult life. Again, all predicted. Isaiah 53. For he grew up before him, like a young plant, and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. That's the life that Jesus entered into. And he did this because he cares about us and so that he could come and trade places with us. Because this baby would go on to live a perfect, sinless life. Jesus would merit an eternity in fellowship with God as a perfect, true son in the kingdom of God. That's everything that Jesus merits. And he willingly gives that to us. We receive that and Jesus takes what we merit. The wrath of God on the cross. This is the Christian hope. We get God. We get his kingdom because Jesus gave it up by coming down here, doing what we could never do and handing us all the merits. And this is the only way that any of us can ever experience peace with God. All of us who have dethroned God in our hearts. This is what the story is about. And when we are connected to God, when we're in relationship with him through Jesus Christ, that peace that the angels are talking about, 
It affects all the parts of us. It affects our hearts. We're going to experience peace even in the midst of a chaotic life. It doesn't mean that when we follow Jesus, Jesus is going to make our lives easier. It means there's going to be a peace inside of us that can center us even when the world around us is truly chaotic. And I think this is, some, this is what Paul is getting at when he writes this to the Philippians church, Philippian church. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And remember, Paul is writing this from jail, not knowing if he's going to even make it out, not knowing if they're going to take his life. Only in Jesus Christ do we have a king who is all-controlling and all-caring, and this king has come here at great cost to himself to save us from our sin. And in this, God is greatly glorified. And I would go so far as to say the coming of Jesus Christ into the world is the greatest manifestation of the glory of God that humanity has ever seen. And there's a reason today that we name our children after the disciples of Jesus Christ and our dogs and cats after the Caesars. There is only one true king. The king, Jesus Christ, And so we have to choose. Who do we want to be king of our lives? I mean, we we may really like ourselves and care about ourselves, but we don't control anything really. So we would make terrible kings of our lives and anything else that we would choose to make kings of our lives, anything else we would choose to put our ultimate hope in, they're going to let us down miserably because they don't control anything and they don't care about us. And so they just accentuate all the problems that we have. But Jesus is in control and he cares about every facet of our life. And believe it or not, he loves us more than we love ourselves. And I love to think about Caesar Augustus's greatest accomplishment, the Pax Romana. He brought peace to the known world. He brought peace to a limited part of the world for a limited time. But Jesus is bringing peace everywhere forever. So you can't ignore this comparison that Luke is begging the question, who is it that's going to be king of our lives? And if we do choose Jesus, God doesn't stop there. He brings us into his plan to bring peace to the world and redemption to all men. So that's where we're going to finish. He makes us heralds. And to see this, we're going to have to go back to the shepherds for a second. So the angels come to the shepherds and they they tell them, don't fear, you're not in trouble. We're not coming to punish you. We're, We're coming to tell you there's good news that a savior has been born. And in this culture, if you had any means at all when your child was born, and especially a male child, you would have hired a herald. This would have been somebody who would walk the streets and announce the birth of your your child or usually your son. And obviously, you know, the the, the wealthier or poorer you were, your, your child was heralded, you know, in, in various degrees, but that's what they would have done. And it's not that different than what we do today. We just do it with cards and social media instead of, instead of the streets. But with that in mind, let's look at verses 17 and 18. And when they saw it, that is the baby, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So do you see what what just happened? They saw it and then they made known. So the shepherds in the story are made the heralds. They're the ones going through the streets announcing the birth. 
And I love that it's the shepherds. Remember the angels that said, this is for all the men. You know, they're, they're, it's not just limited to every race. It's every socioeconomic status. This is, recog- this is offered to everybody who recognizes that we need a savior. And so the shepherds become the heralds. And I love looking at this and, and, and you can see they weren't guilted into going out and heralding for Jesus. You know, they didn't see all this happen and then huddle up for like a, a, a strategy session to come up with a strategic plan to go and evangelize people. It was this natural overflow of their response. And the response to Jesus is what we called worship. There's this pattern to to the shepherd's process. They hear about Jesus, they go to Jesus, and then they worship Jesus. And then out of their worship, they can't help but go and tell people. You know, I've been around pastors who will stand at the pulpit and, and beat what I call the commitment drum. You know, you need to give more. You need to, you need to share your faith more. You need to do these things, serve more. Because you're just not committed. Well, that misses the whole heart of the Christian faith to me. You know, everything that we do as Christians should be an overflow of the worship of the one who came to rescue us, to to save us, and to redeem us. And so in our worship, we are immediately made active in this plan of God's redemption for the world. So now, if we're longing for purpose, if we're desiring and trying to figure out what is our role in this world, this is it. We worship And out of our worship, we too become heralds. I was talking with a a pastor of a very large, well-known church. And he was telling me that when his church began to really start to grow, I mean, the, the, the momentum was really, really picking up. They were becoming nationally known. There was a pastor on the other side of town who said, I wish the people who went to so and so church would just stop talking about so and so church so much. And of course, the pastor of this growing church took that as a great compliment because there was no huddle session that what we're gonna do, we're gonna all go out into the community and talk about so-and-so church. It was just natural. They were worshiping. They were so pleased with Jesus and what was going on in their church. They just couldn't help but go out into the neighborhoods and workplace and talk about this church. It was natural. And I think this is what we see with, with Peter and John when they're in Acts, when they're brought in front of the high priest and they're told that they can no longer be spreading this message that they're spreading. Do you remember their response? We can't help but talk about it. We can't help but talk about it. And you have to remember, these are the same people that when Jesus died on the cross, they scattered in fear. And now they're saying, I can't help. Even, even at penalty of death, I cannot help but talk about this anymore. What had changed? They saw the risen Jesus Christ. They went to him and they worshiped. And they can't help but do certain things and act certain things when their hearts are in this place, when they receive this peace and, and they worship. So my prayer, my prayer for myself as life is crazy busy for us with four kids involved in all these activities My prayer is that I would be able to see more clearly whenever I read the Christmas story, see a nativity or any any other biblical imagery in in our society that I would be able to deeply feel that I'm a shepherd. I don't merit God coming to me and telling me anything and that I am given a savior whom I 
need as much as any human who has ever lived. And then I have been given the blessing of being able to be a herald. You know, not just here on Sundays, but in every moment of our life. If, if that would seep into me more deeply and all of us more deeply, I really think we would see worship in our hearts that maybe we didn't even know could happen and we will see it overflowing in ways we never dreamed or imagined. So that's my prayer and I would invite you to join me right now and pray for that. Pray for that. God, we are so thankful for this opportunity to just be reminded. I mean, this is what worship's for, an opportunity to slow down, to refocus, so that, so we can we gather so that we can be filled and scatter. And that we can we worship so that there's an overflow into all these other areas of our lives and we all have so far to go, but I pray today you would encourage us that that we would be excited to give more of our lives to you in worship to give more of the areas that we hold on to, that we would be able to see these other things creeping into our life that we really do want to make king. And I pray that you would just, that you and your glory would be so compelling that those other kings would just wash away. We thank you, we love you, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.